You're listening to The Devoted Podcast, where our desire is to be women devoted to the Word of God. We're so glad you're here, and we pray you'll be challenged and encouraged as we look to God's Word together. Hey, gals, welcome to The Devoted Podcast. So glad you guys are with us today. Boy, I still just so wish I could see you guys sometime as I'm sitting here in my closet. I tell you guys this, but I really do. When people stop me and and say, hey, will you listen to the podcast? Or I feel like I've been talking to you all day. I so love that because then I just get a face to these folks that are out there just, just listening away. So helps me to see who you guys are. So keep doing that because I, I so love that. So I am mulling over some things this morning and I am just going to see where this goes today. So I, in my normal Bible reading, I am trucking away. You guys know if you've been listening for a long time, I'm a big Bible reading plan gal, but not in the sense that I must complete the Bible in a year. Nope. That rarely happens. There's been a couple times that I would say that's happened in the last, you know, I don't know, however many years since I've been doing that long time. But typically, it's a year and a half, maybe it's, you know, I don't know, it's all over. And the reason for that is because I just think that we really need to let the spirit kind of drive our speed through the word. I think it's so important to not only be in the word every day, but I think it's really important to read through the full counsel of scripture. And so I've mixed it up in different ways, sometimes doing the entire Bible in a year, sometimes doing just the New Testament so I can slow down or, but I really do love just being able to be in both Testaments even throughout the year. I just think it's so important to see all of that. There's so much of it that goes together and the Lord just shows so much to you in that time. So, and today I, uh, or right now this season, I'm in the New Testament and I am in Acts right now. And I read today this, the account of when Paul is being brought before, well, he's already in prison with Felix and, you know, the prison he was taken in custody there and he is waiting to find out where what he's going to happen. So he keeps like putting his case before them. He put it, his case before um, Felix and his wife, Drusella. And then later, Agrippa comes with his wife and he's going to present his case there. So I'm going to walk you through a little bit of this story because I think this is interesting for us to camp out on just a little bit and particularly for where we are in the season of life right now and the things, I think there's some things to learn from how Paul addressed his court, as you will, as he's as he's in this trial. It's not an official trial, but you'll you'll get what I mean. So let's back up a little bit. Paul is, I believe, in Jerusalem originally when this kind of this story starts. And he is there when he's approached by some other members of the church that are saying, hey, Paul, some people are really upset with you because you have been working with Gentiles. And so the the people of uh, the Jews were real upset about anything that they thought where Paul was going against Jewish tradition, against the law. And so they give Paul some advice and they say, here's the thing. Let, why don't you go and you know purify yourself and go through the seven day, whatever the rite was that they would go through the temple and he would purify himself and he would go to the temple and present himself and all this, these kinds of things. But something that was according to the law. And it was sort of like, you know, almost to get into the good graces, if you will, a little bit of the Jews. And it's interesting to me that Paul even does this, but he does. And and I and I think there's another place, I'll bring this up in a minute, where he says why he does this. But he does this for the Jews. This does not satisfy him. 
or it doesn't satisfy the Jews. You know, they go and uh, they are still all kinds of uh, upset at Paul and they have him arrested. So long story short, Paul eventually, after, you know, the Jews threaten his life and all of these things, he eventually ends up in the court of Felix. And that's where he's at. And he presents his case to Felix a little bit. And then, it, you know, at the end of it, he appeals to Caesar. And this is the showstopper right here, because once you appeal to Caesar, apparently in Roman law, then that's where the case stops. Like, not, not, you can't do anything else. You've appealed to Caesar, and so to Caesar you must go. And so that's that's the what Felix says to Paul in Acts 25. That's where that ends right there. Well, then there's this little segue to this story here. And someone named Agrippa came, and Agrippa and his wife Bernice, they come to visit Felix. And so he's going to present his case in front of Agrippa and Bernice. And I don't know a lot of the historical context of Agrippa. I, I want to dig into that at some point. But I do understand that he had um, he understood the Jewish tradition. And he and, and Paul will reference that in his spiel here that he's going to make to Agrippa and Bernice. So he knows that Agrippa is aware of some of the things he's talking about. I want to read just a little bit so you can just have a better context in Acts 25, 13. This is where, it, starting in verse 13, it talks about when they're come. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation, condemnation against him. So then he's going to go on and say, I can't really find out what the charge is. You know, he's he's appealed to Caesar, so I, I have to send him to Caesar, but I'm not even really sure what to say that he's guilty of. Verse 19, rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who is dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss on how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said he, you will hear him. So this is the little introduction that we have here. Agrippa is coming and seeing Festus and he's laying out this situation that, hey, we are going to, I'm going to let you hear this case and see if you can help me out with this. So it's in Acts 26 where he starts putting his case before them. So Paul, this is how he responds. And he says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. So this is the one of the pieces that gives us a hint to the fact that Herod Agrippa, who he's laying his case before, he's familiar with the Jewish traditions. He says the controversies. He says, this is great that I get to talk to you, Agrippa. Now, what I think is interesting is that do we really think it's that Paul just thought it was so great that he got to talk to Agrippa because he had the you know, some background with the Jewish tradition. Okay, that could be part of it. But we know that earlier on, God called Paul that he that said that he would bring his case even before kings. So I kind of think of Paul in this scenario. And of course, this is Amy commentary. 
just take it for what it's worth. But I think Paul looks at any opportunity that he gets before kings. I think he thinks of it at any opportunity he gets in front of any people where he gets to present the gospel. This is what lights Paul up. He gets really excited about it. But I like how he's laying this out and he's kind of greasing the wheels a little bit, maybe with Agrippa going, oh, this is so great that I get to talk to you because you are so accustomed to the Jewish traditions. Okay, and then I'm not going to read word for word everything that Paul says here. I'll give you a snippet. And really what would be way better is if you go back and you read Acts 25 and 26. But where Paul goes from here for the rest of this chapter in 26 is he tells his story. He tells of his conversion to Jesus Christ. So he, he starts at the beginning and he says, hey, I was a Pharisee. Okay, he knows that Agrippa even knows what a Pharisee is. He even says in there that he said, I had a vote when they were persecuting Christians. And the fact that when he says that he has a vote, that kind of gives us a hint that not only was Paul a Pharisee, but he was likely a memory member of the Sanhedrin, which that's the ruling class for the Jewish people. So he had clout for sure. And then he's going to take that really juxtapose that against the fact that, you know, here he is a hater of these people that follow Jesus. He was voting for them to be persecuted. And then he goes and he talks about his road to Damascus, where he sees this light. And he gives one of the most descript places where he talks about his conversion, talks about his conversion to Jesus at that time, that he saw a light and that he was blinded by this light. And it was then Jesus that spoke to him when he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. So he gives his story on how he came to know Jesus and know that he was the resurrected Jesus that he this whole time had been persecuting. So I want to pause just for a second on Paul's conversion here, because I do think it's there's so many things about his story that are so remarkable, aren't there? I mean, Paul would have been the person that would have been the least likely that anyone would have believed would have started following Jesus. And it's hard for us to get a modern day, I guess, glimpse of what that can look like. But if you can just picture or think of the very last person maybe that you personally know, or maybe just somebody culturally, maybe maybe pick, you know, some movie star or some person that just is adamant against God. Think of that person and then kind of think that's Paul. I mean, that is how remarkable and how dramatic this conversion would have been, that he would have taken someone that just made it their mission to hate Christians, to persecute them, to put them in prison and take that same man and make him one of the biggest advocates, preachers of the gospel, and wrote most of the New Testament. I mean, it's really a remarkable story when you think of it, who it is. But one of the things I love about Paul's conversion story is how immediate it is. He immediately repents. There isn't this progression. Like, you know, he sees Jesus on that road to Damascus, and he is immediately changed. It's interesting to me that it's not like Paul, I mean, he was definitely repenting of moral issues in that, you know, he was putting Christians in jail and that that kind of thing. But at the same time, really, he was doing that out of zealousness, misplaced zealousness for God. He believed that they were in error against the things that the true God, the God of Israel, that 
he would be still serving, but he didn't understand this. And so it was a misplaced zeal. And that's really what he repents of. And when I think of that, it's interesting, you know, we know folks that will have this conversion experience, and there will be some moral changes that they make in their life, like right away. Sometimes there's things that they don't even recognize at the point of their conversion that those are things that they need to change. But eventually, as you grow in the Lord, and you learn more about his word and what he has for you, that's when those things start to change. Well, Paul's conversion is right away. I mean, the repentance is immediate. But the thing that God does right then is gives him a new purpose. And he says in there that he will make him a minister and a witness. And I love that just those two words right there, minister and witness. Because as I as we talk about the rest of this story here on what Paul is going to say in front of Agrippa and, and Bernice and, and Festus, let's notice what it isn't and what it is. So Paul tells his conversion story to, uh, to his audience here, and he explains how he became who he was. Great story. But then he points them to something really specific. And it's in verse 21 of chapter 26 of Acts. And it says, for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That, and here's, here's the key, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. That's his point right there in verse 23, that Christ must suffer, that he would rise from the dead, and that he would proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles, to all the world, basically. Here's the thing that Paul does that I find so fascinating. So he, what is he doing in this? Remember, he's giving, supposed to be giving an answer. They're trying to listen to this and go, okay, we have to come up with a charge that we can write up and send with this guy on to Caesar. That's the point. So they asked Paul basically for a defense. What have you done? And this is what he says he's done. D- did anybody hear anything that he's actually done? No, he doesn't really defend himself, really. That's not really what's happening here. If we go back to remember what he was supposed to be accused of by the Jewish people, it was mostly the fact that the Jews did not believe that he was really adhering to Jewish law. And so that was when I explained that little piece earlier in Acts where it talked about him going into the temple and going through a purification ceremony and that kind of stuff so that he would be, the Jews would see him as abiding by the law and the customs that they had as Jewish people. So that's kind of where the trouble started. But Paul doesn't necessarily really address that much. I mean, he can say for this reason, he says the Jews seized me. Now, the reason he is saying that the Jews seized him and arrested him and had him taken off was the fact that he is proclaiming Jesus. Like really that that's the bottom line, that he was proclaiming Jesus. So if you go back to when it was what his purpose was going to be when he had this dramatic new purpose given to him, it was to make you a minister and a witness. So Paul uses this circumstance where he is arguably other than Caesar. I mean, that would be the only the next one that would be the only other higher court, if you will, that he would be in front of. And he doesn't necessarily defend himself with, you know, the Jews said I did this, but I didn't do that. And and they wanted me to. He doesn't do that. He doesn't have a outline and a point by point. You know, this person came to me and said this and I responded this. There's no defense. But what he does is those two things that Jesus gave him as his new purpose after his conversion, that he would be a minister and a witness, because that's exactly what he does in this so-called defense here. 
he gives his conversion story of how he met Jesus. He's being a minister and then he is witnessing what Jesus has done, meeting Jesus, the dramatic change that has happened in him by being someone who hated and persecuted Christians to being a Christian. That is his defense. Okay, so maybe you're thinking that's awesome. That's a great little lesson in Acts 26. But where are you going with this? Well, here is what kind of hit me with this. I feel like in a lot of ways right now, we have a trial going on right now, if you will. And by this, I'm meaning this is a picture of almost like a courtroom kind of thing, a Roman courtroom, not quite what we would see today, but Paul on trial, so to speak. And he is presenting his case before the higher authority. And it just makes me wonder what kinds of how are we on trial right now? And what is the message? What is the witness? How are we being ministers to the trial that we're in right now? So when I ask myself kind of this hard-hitting question of, okay, Aim, what trial are you in right now? And what's your message in this? It's going to be hard-pressed because our normal reaction when someone accuses us of something or if we're trying to, you know, worst case scenario, we were trying to get ourselves out of jail, we would be presenting our case of here's the facts. Here's what this person accused me of. This is what I did. This is what I did not do. We would have an answer for those types of things. But what's missing in Paul's defense is really any defense of, yeah, the Jews thought I wasn't abiding by this, but I actually was. And in this city, I went to this temple. And, and, you know, he could have come up with a laundry list of all the ways that he was actually abiding by Jewish law in all of these Gentile cities that he was in. But he, he just doesn't do that. He doesn't take this opportunity to kind of go at the Jews on their points of the law. He takes this opportunity to stand before these higher officials, these kings, and to be a minister and a witness to the gospel of Jesus. He wants to talk about the change that's happened in his life. And then what, and honestly, I think he's really going, this is a great opportunity to be before Agrippa and maybe Agrippa will be saved. Now, I may be reading some into the text of that, but I do feel like you sort of see this, this hesitance as you read this story with Agrippa that he even says at one point, do you think after all this, you know, you're going to make me a Christian? Kind of a, a joke a little bit. But you almost wonder if if this didn't give Agrippa some pause, because if you get to the end of the chapter, he, you know, he whispers to Festus and he's like, yeah, there's nothing against this guy. If he hadn't appealed to Caesar, you could have just let him go because I, I don't see anything. So he's not seeing the fault and the guilt that supposedly was to accompany Paul in this. So I, I sent a little bit of some hesitancy with that. But Agrippas are interesting characters in this story as well. And I think sometimes we know some Agrippas. These are the almost Christians. I mean, Agrippa was close a little bit, it looks like, you know. But I, you have to wonder if Agrippa was also thinking of the things he'd have to give up. His wife, Bernice, was known to be a, a very immoral woman, for sure. He would have had to given up, give up that kind of lifestyle. So there's things that he had to not do that he just wasn't ready to give up. So he kind of fall, he kind of lands himself into this almost Christian camp. And that's a sad camp to be in. And I wonder sometimes if we can find these almost Christian camps in both the church and the world. 
Now, if that sounds weird to you, follow me for a second, because I mean, the world, we can see the almost Christians all the time. You know, you can see the ones that, you know, maybe they even want to say, oh, yeah, I believe there's a God and I believe that, you know, there's a higher power. But we know that the gospel is repentance. The gospel is believing that Jesus needed to die on the cross for what? For our sins, that we have sin that has to be repented of, that Jesus was the payment for that sin, but he's also the resurrected life that we get to have after our death. The gospel is believing that Jesus died and rose again. The gospel is not believing that there's a God. That's not the gospel. I almost wonder if Agrippa would have found himself in that camp a little bit like, oh, okay, maybe I I believe there's a God. But do I really want to believe all this crazy stuff that Paul's telling me about some light on Damascus? And I don't know. I think he's intrigued, but he's in that almost camp. So that's maybe where the world finds themselves into that almost camp. But how does sometimes so-called Christians find themselves into the almost Christian camp? And I actually think the answer is kind of the same. Because there are Christians, and especially if you, I don't even want to say study, because honestly, it's just so pronounced now in our culture, the progressive Christian movement, that is more, it can fall into a social justice movement. There's all kinds of things that are so-called Christian, and that's how your Christianity is defined. But when you peel them back, guys, is there any gospel in it? Is it the things that they're doing, the things that they think that are defining them as Christians, does it really have anything to do with repentance of our sin and giving our lives to Jesus, recognizing that he is the son of God that died for our sin and rose again? If it doesn't point to that, well, then they're still kind of in the almost Christian camp too. And I think they'd find themselves with Agrippa. But think about that for a moment. That's a really sad spot to be in. Because for some of those folks, they know a lot of the truth. They know it in their head. But like Agrippa, they aren't really ready to repent. They're not really ready to say that I don't want to have anything to do with my sin. They're not even maybe ready to recognize that, hey, I am a sinner and that I need to lay this down. So they're almost Christians, but an almost Christian isn't a Christian. And almost going to heaven after you die isn't the same as going to heaven after you die. It's a sad spot that Agrippa's in. But coming back to the trial that we're in right now, because like I said, I feel like I would be very tempted to defend myself in when I'm under attack for something. But I want to take a note from Paul in this, because he was quite literally fighting for his life, you could argue. This was not a friendly environment that he's in. He's now appealed to Caesar, which you know, if Caesar says off with your head, then that's that's what happens. So he knows that this argument that he's making is life and death. And instead of choosing to defend himself tit for tat on the actual maybe the reason the you know, the minutia of why the Jewish leaders actually turned him over to the Romans, he said he instead chooses to say this is who Jesus is and proclaim the gospel. So here's my ever so difficult question to myself, how do I do with that? How do you do with that? We are on trial right now in one way or the other. And you can take this, I can take this in small ways that really aren't so small, but maybe less dramatic ways. So if you're a mom, you are on trial right now and you have this sweet little jury that is maybe shorter, or in my case, my jury is 
now all taller than me, but they're watching. They're watching you, mom. And they're watching to see how you are going to defend this. How are you going to act in this situation? We're faced right now with difficulties and and decisions that we make for our families and education and jobs and mandates and things that I never thought that we would have to be thinking through and how we're doing this. So the trial that we're in just in the small microcosm in our families is we're, whether you're doing it deliberately or it's just by observation, we have people that we are ministering to. And you have to be very cognizant as Paul was of what your witness is, because we can choose to be very combative or we can choose to make sure the thing that we're pointing to is pointing back to the gospel. What does it look like to point to the gospel in this scenario? I think one of the things and with what's going on right now, so if I'm you know, on my mind right now is probably whatever is on everybody's mind because it has been for the last almost two years now is pandemic, right? disease, virus, you know, protecting yourself, masks, you know, all the different things. How do you point to the gospel in that trial? And this is a powerful witness. I'll first say to the non-believer, because where the non-believer is at in this pandemic and this new normal that we have now, which I don't even like that term. I'm sorry. I just don't know what else to say, but it is. It's just the way we live now. But is the non-believing world does not have this hope of heaven that we have in our heart. They do not have that. And they are so driven by self-preservation. And I'm not even trying to make that sound in like an ugly, like selfish way. I'm just meaning that they are completely freaked out. They are terrified that they're going to die. If you're a Christian, you're here like Paul is and you're presenting who Jesus is. You're presenting the gospel. Paul knows what happens should Caesar order off with his head. And that's dramatic, right? But it's actually no different than you and I if you're a believer. Because if we're believers, guys, we have zero things to fear. And I know I'm not, I know I'm talking to many of you that are, can give a really loud amen to that. I am not the slightest bit afraid of death. I'm not even a little bit afraid of, you know, the number of days that I have or no, I am not afraid. For the Christian, the day that you die is the absolute greatest day of your life. Absolutely. But for the non-believer, guys, it's terrifying. And if that doesn't give us like a little bit of pause, at least, and to just have a, some compassion for those that are just, they're just freaked out and they're just terrified. Hopefully that allows us to give a little bit of grace to even some of the reactions we get, maybe even some of the angry looks you get, because they're reacting, they're responding from a place that is out of fear. They do not have the hope that you have. Now, sometimes in some of the closer relationships, maybe you have an opportunity for this to look like so you're pointing to the gospel within your trial, that you're pointing by actually getting to have a conversation, hopefully at some point, and please don't do it on Facebook, it will not work out well. But where you can actually have a face to face conversation on why are you smiling in the midst of all of this? Why are you not freaked out? And hopefully you can give voice to that, that you can witness, that you can be a minister to the gospel, that you are so free 
You are so free from fear and all of the things that are trapping this world up right now because you have an eternal hope because of Jesus that died for your sins that you get to go to heaven. The, the day you die is a fantastic day, but actually having like real conviction that you believe that. Hopefully in closer relationships, that is the witness that you can have. But what about just to the people that we may randomly see outside or in a store? I won't say this is for everyone, but for me, I do my very best, guys, to smile as much as I possibly can. And if I'm in a place where the mask is absolutely required, then I do, you know, photographers call it smiling with your eyes. You can smile with your eyes. But trying to even make eye contact with people, have you guys noticed that even that has become something that's we just kind of don't do either it's because our face is down in our phone or it's that we're we've kind of in the last couple years established sort of a just more of a fear of people or some people have you know you know you never know you kind of it's i think it's probably a product of the socially distance but for the various reasons we have a little bit more of a standoffishness to people and that's that's sad. So your witness that this may seem like a small thing, but it truly could just be when you go into the store, when you're getting gas in your car, when you're seeing somebody, when you drop off your kids at school, just having that countenance that is smiling and is hopeful and is not has this don't have a look of consternation of worry. The world has got that in spades right now. But we can be such a light and actually just a very easy minister of the gospel just by the countenance that we have. Because eventually those folks are either we're going to start a trend where we people will notice that, oh, you're just not always freaked out all the time. And that will be refreshing. And maybe they'll ask some good questions. And I think this could go both ways. I think this can go with non-Christians and also with believers, because we do have believing friends that are have that fear, too. And they need to be bolstered in their faith. I want to read you guys a verse in 1 Corinthians. Earlier when I was referencing the why Paul did this, I'm sorry, I, I think I've stopped and started on that particular question a couple times here. But why did Paul, anyway, why did he go through those motions? And I'm saying motions a little bit because Paul did not believe that you had to follow the law unto salvation. So you can read all of Galatians and find out about that. But he didn't believe that he needed to do all of these boxes that the Jewish tradition was following. So why does he, when the Jewish leaders and when the other people of the church say, no, go through this purification thing and go do this. I think 1 Corinthians tells us why. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 22. You can back up a little bit too, but I'm going to start at 22. And it says, to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. So how I see that in the context of this, because even before that, he's talking about for those that are under the law, I, you know, I abided by the law. And we, and we know that Paul was doing his best to follow the law when it, he just was not doing it unto salvation. We know that Timothy was um, half Jewish. And so he had Timothy circumcised. That was a big deal in Jewish tradition. And he did that. Titus, though, Titus was a Gentile. He did not have Titus be crucified and did not recommend that for him. So he was abiding by the Jewish law, but not unto salvation. But then this verse 22, it says, to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak and I have become all things to all people. I see such humility in Paul 
when we read that account in Acts of him going through this purification and doing these things for this Jewish leader, he was trying to be peaceable. He really was not trying to stir the pot about things that it did not need to be stirred, if that makes any sense. And I think that's why he chose to go through that seven day period and maybe a little bit, you could say, appease the Jewish leaders because he was trying to do that. He was trying to do that. He might save some, you know, and he says in the continuing to verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. This is really the heart of Paul. So I think, first of all, you see humility there to be like, you know what? This isn't worth stirring the pot over. So you bet I'm going to go through this process. I'm going to go do this thing at the temple. Now, we can see that it actually did not appease them at all, and they still ended up throwing him in jail. But I think the heart and the motive of Paul is a good lesson to go, how can I not be a distraction to the gospel? Because I think that was what his intention was to do. He wanted the gospel to be able to share in the blessings of it with everyone. As I think about all of these things, as it relates to maybe how we're responding when we're on trial, are we pointing to the gospel? It makes me think the next question of, you know, how do we do that better? How do we point back to the gospel and how do we point to Jesus more? I'm going to steal a little story from Pastor Tad at Athey. He actually shared the, I'm going to share a little bit of a devotional that he gave to all of us at the staff one night. So don't give Amy credit for this. If you see uh, Tad around Athey, you know, tell him that was a great one. But he walked us through Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, where in each of those, the disciples are walking up into the temple with Jesus. And they are just marveling at how amazing the temple is. Look at these stones and look at these noble buildings. And and they're just in awe. And I can't even imagine what they were beholding because the stories of the things about the temple were pretty amazing. So it's not like the disciples didn't have something to remark upon. But Tad highlighted in this, and I just, I don't know, I feel like maybe I missed this before. But they're remarking all these things about the temple and how amazing it is. All the while, who are they walking with? They are literally walking with Jesus. They're walking with the very one that is the glory of the temple. And they're marking at all of the buildings and how cool this is and all that. Now, Jesus, you got to love his response. He doesn't say, why are you looking at the temple? You should be looking at me. Nope, he didn't do that. He should have, He or he could have, but he doesn't say that. Instead, he just says, yeah, not one of these stones will be left unturned. And then he starts talking about things that will happen in the end times. It's interesting what Jesus doesn't say, just like what Paul didn't say. Paul didn't sit there and give a defense of all the things that he could have against the Jewish people. Jesus didn't say to the disciples, hey, uh, guys, whatever about the rocks, I am the son of God right here. He didn't say that. But what we need to see is is the person of Jesus that was right there. Because what the disciples should have been pointing to was Jesus, not the cool buildings. They should have been seeing Jesus. It just makes me think about, you know, what things do I point to? So I talk about here regularly on the podcast that the thing that I desire most to point you gals to is the word of God. That's what I want to do. I will say so many dumb things. I guarantee it. I, I will misspeak. I will, you guys are going to hear me, you know, kind of stutter on my words and go, oh, I, I don't think she meant that. She probably meant this. I am going to say dumb stuff. 
but the word is never going to lead you guys astray. So the thing that I want to point to when I'm here on the podcast, I want to point people to the word. I want you guys to go and actually look up Acts 24 and 25 and 26. And I want you to study what Paul does there. And I want you to see how he points people to the gospel. But then I also am hoping that you'll take those and then you will just pray about that and ask yourself some questions like we've talked about here today of how, Lord, do I present the gospel? How do I be a witness and a minister of the gospel in this trial that I'm in right now? Because I need to ask myself that too, guys. How do we do this? And I'm hoping that where we head, even though we're going to make mistakes and we're going to say dumb things, right? But I hope that our mission and our goal is to point people towards Jesus and towards the gospel. So that's me taking this in like the small microcosm of the podcast. But then like go off other things that you guys are doing and interactions with your kids and interactions with your kids as teachers, maybe with somebody at the place that you work that absolutely hates Christians, hates them. And he doesn't like you either. I mean, it just he like he doesn't like the idea of a Christian. He doesn't like people that stand for it. Oh, just smile at him, at her, whoever it is. Let your countenance carry the confidence that Jesus is the one that ordains our steps. He is the one that has our whole future mapped out, knows exactly the number of our days. I want to conclude with just this one verse. And I love this so much because I think it should just remind us of where our confidence really is. Psalm 31, 14 through 15 says, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. I pray that we will just have that kind of confidence, that regardless of all of the things that are coming at us either through the news or they're coming at us in our email from our kids' school or our workplace and requirements they're saying, I hope that we can come back to Psalm. I hope that we can honestly say this to the Lord and say, Lord, I trust you. You are my God. And my times this time, 2021 guys even, is in your hand. Thank you for tuning in to The Devoted Podcast. We are a ministry of Athey Creek Christian Fellowship in West Lynn, Oregon. For more resources, or if you need prayer or encouragement, send us an email at devotedpodcast at athecreek.com.